This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not see hear it. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord of heaven and earth, our heavenly Father, we ask now that you would open our eyes to grasp and embrace and rejoice in the truth that you have revealed to us in your word. Help us to understand the riches of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ, that we might love him, adore him, trust him, and live for him. And we ask this in his name. Amen. The last couple of weeks, we spent our time in the first 16 verses of Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sent out 72 disciples to go and proclaim the kingdom of God to all kinds of towns and villages. And in so doing, he commissioned the disciples and he gave them the great privilege of doing the work of God's kingdom, putting their hand to the plow. And so they went preaching the gospel as ambassadors of Christ, being empowered by his spirit. And today we open up to verse 17 and we see that the 72 they return back from their journey and labors with great joy at all the success and wonderful experiences they had in serving Christ and his kingdom. And in fact the constant theme of this passage is joy if you notice that in our reading of it we see repeated over and over again the words joy and rejoicing. Now there's a lot going on here. In this portion of scripture, Satan falling like lightning, something about snakes and scorpions, and the doctrine of election. A very nice motley of sorts. But all in all, these various details are converging to make this one simple point to instruct the Christian. And that is, don't base your joy and your feeling of closeness to God on what you do for Christ but rather on who you are in Christ. The the root and source of your daily joy must be in what God has done for you, not what you can do for Him or have done or will do for Him. You see, this entire account hinges on the 72 rejoicing that in all of their faithful service to Jesus. But Jesus says, that's great, But nevertheless, don't ultimately rejoice in your labors for God, but rejoice 
that you belong to God, and that He calls you His own. You know, this is one of the most basic truths of the gospel, but I think it's the thing that we are most prone to forget as believers. You know, many of us perhaps have been conditioned by our upbringing or even by our culture to feel that love and acceptance must be earned. Because experience has taught us that delight or approval by others is contingent on, maybe from a young age, our academic success. What a good student we've been, what kind of grades we get. Or our career success. Well, what we've been able to accomplish in life, how much money you make, how prominent and prestigious is your role. Or some other metric that is employed to determine how pleased people are with us. And perhaps... The foremost is even our relationships with our own parents and how we feel that we are accepted by them only when X, Y, and Z. And so often our experience with fallen imperfect people tends to color in our view of God, or should I say discolors His holy perfection as the Heavenly Father in whom there is no variation or change. And that is to be the unshakable bedrock of our constant joy. That we are His in Christ. Period. And we need to be reminded of this every day to rejoice in the gospel. And this is why the Christian never graduates from the gospel. The gospel is not just a means of becoming a Christian... The gospel is the very lifeblood of the Christian. Every believer needs to hear the gospel every week, every day, and to constantly be renewed in our minds by it. And this is why we gather every Sunday, to worship God with His people, and that is primarily by being fed by Him. You know, the pagans, they offer food to their idols. But we, as God's people, we receive the very bread of life, Christ himself, from him. And we are fed by him by the preaching of his word and being reaffirmed in gospel truths, even visibly and tangibly through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, all so that we might be nourished and energized by his grace to love and serve him with our lives. Now, to be sure, there is a joy, indeed, in serving Christ. Don't get me wrong. When Jesus says, don't rejoice in that, he's not saying you're never allowed to find joy and fulfillment in being a faithful servant of his. Jesus is speaking comparatively. The issue here is the ultimate essential basis of joy and that all other joys must be derived from it. But there is indeed a legitimate joy to be had and experienced in serving Christ and his kingdom. Let's not take away from that because Jesus doesn't take away from it. Notice how he takes the time to first affirm a real excitement that comes from being a useful and fruitful servant. Look in verse 17. As the 72 return with joy and enthusiasm, they tell Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And just like with the 12, back in chapter 9, for the 72 here, Jesus had evidently conferred his divine authority over all demons to them because they were commissioned by Jesus as his emissaries. And that's what it means to do anything in Jesus' name. It's, it's to act as his representative. And, and, and that Jesus was indeed with them in spirit, 
in power as they represented him. And so as they went to minister to to people all over the land, when they encountered various souls that were oppressed and dominated by the evil one, the authority of Jesus himself overpowered the darkness. Now that must have been really cool. I mean, that, 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 I would have felt valiant and so, so energetic and, and juiced for the gospel to be able to take on demonic forces. And so as they returned, they were saying, Lord, we were battling against evil forces and we were triumphing over them. The demons were cowering at, at the authority of your name. And Jesus responds, oh, I know. In fact, let me just tell you how triumphant really is the kingdom of God and its power. And so he says in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what did Jesus mean by this? Well, in one sense, it sounds like Jesus is referring to the very, very distant past of when Satan first fell and rebelled against God to become the fallen angel that he is, which is possibly alluded to in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Now, of course, this being all before man's fall, because it was the serpent, Satan himself who deceived Adam and Eve to join his rebellion against God. And well, no doubt, Jesus was there to see all of that, to see Satan's original fall, Because he is the eternal Son of God, one with the Father throughout all eternity. But I think that here, Jesus was mainly referring to something a little bit more immediate and recent from the vantage point of when he spoke these words, at least. Because when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall, it may not be as explicit uh, in the English translation, but the verb that is used, it describes a, a continual seeing of something that was unfolding rather than a reference to just one particular point in time. In other words, Jesus was saying something like, I was watching Satan fall like lightning. When was he watching this? Well, this was in response to the 72 saying, the demons are subject to us in your name. That is to say, it was during their mission of proclaiming God's kingdom and delivering souls from the bondage of darkness that Jesus was observing the spiritual reality of Satan tumbling down further and further into his demise. Because here, as even ordinary folk, ordinary sinners, 72 of them, were being used by God to overthrow the devil's regime, it was a further crushing blow to the kingdom of darkness. In this sense, Jesus was watching Satan tumbling down and down and down, being continually stripped of his grip and chokehold that he had on the souls of men. Because those whom the devil and his agents had particularly dominated by demonic oppression, they were being utterly overpowered by the servants of Christ acting in his name. And this is what the casting out of demons was showing. That there is a new sheriff in town. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name there is absolute triumph and vanquishing of the reign of darkness. 
And this same triumph continues today when sinners are saved and, and come to Christ and enter His kingdom by faith. You know, every time, every time a sinner is converted to Christ, it is but a further falling of the devil, the continual downfall of a serpent who is completely powerless against the Spirit of God at work in the hearts of sinners whenever the gospel is preached. You see, there's an important lesson here that that we need to heed. Yes, the world is wicked. Yes, the world is increasing in godlessness. And yes, the world is submerged under the lies of Satan governed by demonic ideologies. But we are not to fear the devil. He is not and has never once been the ultimate authority. We are to fear God alone, who is our refuge and strength, and the King of all kings reigning on His throne, even today. The devil is helpless before God and His kingdom. And because we as believers are the, are the blessed servants of God, there must be a spirit of triumphant valiance in the church. As we sound the trumpet of His kingdom, believing in its power to break the shackles of sin by the sword of the Spirit, which is... The word of God, as Ephesians 6 says. And so Jesus continues to say in verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now this verse is interesting because, again, as I've said many times before, uh, there are people who believe that this should be done today and that this personally applies to them. Well, if you believe that everything Jesus said is meant to be normative, of every generation of the church, such as healing and doing miracles today, and you fail to see that it was just a specific instruction for specific people at a unique point in redemptive history that is not meant to be replicated, then in order to be consistent, you'd have to not only attempt to perform miracles like the charismatics do, but you should be willing to be bitten by rattlesnakes. Because Jesus is supposedly speaking to you personally here that he's given you that authority and nothing shall ever hurt you. All I'll say is good luck. Don't say I didn't warn you. And there are consequences to bad hermeneutics, uh, misinterpreting the Bible. Look, we have to remember that just because we see someone do something somewhere in the Bible it doesn't mean that it's God's will for us today to, do, to replicate the same thing. Look, God does not want you to grab a wooden staff and go to Lake Tahoe and try to part it in half just because you saw it in Exodus. You're going to look like a real dummy and people are going to record you and put you on YouTube and people are going to ask, whoa, what church is this guy from? And I got to tell you, I'm going to deny you three times. <laughs> Maybe more if necessary. I swear I never knew the man. Look, the parting of the Red Sea was a unique work of God through his unique servant Moses for a unique purpose. Stop making the Bible revolve around you. But in any case, the question as we come to this verse is, did Jesus give the 72 disciples the authority to literally tread on serpents and scorpions such that they would physically be invulnerable to these poisonous creatures? Possibly. Uh, We're not told explicitly of every detail that went on in their journeys, 
But it's possible, given that the Apostle Paul had a similar experience. You remember in Acts chapter 28, when Paul was uh, shipwrecked and he came across this island called Malta, and there was a venomous viper that bit his hand and he just shook it away like a boss. And God used that as another apostolic sign and wonder to authenticate the message that he would uh, preach to the islanders. And so, yes, it's possible that something like that happened uh, with the 72 in their journeys. But whatever the case, what we can say for sure is that Jesus was conveying in a metaphorical sense of the conquering power that he had conferred upon them. Because notice that the language of trampling on serpents, it's an allusion to Genesis three fifteen. The promised seed will one day crush the head of the serpent. And as we are found in Christ and partake in his kingdom work, as his people, as his church, we share in Jesus' triumphant power to crush both the serpent and his demonic underlings, perhaps depicted here as serpents, plural, and scorpions. And this spiritual sense is probably most likely, given that Jesus told them, nothing will ever harm you. Well, actually, the apostles and the early Christians, they were greatly harmed, weren't they? Many of them were stoned, beaten to death, persecuted, mauled by lions, all kinds of torture for the sake of Christ. And so Jesus wasn't promising that nothing will harm them in an immediate physical sense, but that spiritually, the devil is powerless to lay a finger on them. Says Jesus spoke of his sheep in John chapter 10. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And notice the language of treading on serpents and scorpions. This is not just defense, but there is an offensive power to God's people. It doesn't mean, as many have misunderstood throughout the ages, it does not mean that as God's church that we are to conquer the world through worldly means, through force, through sword, through violence, through political schemes, with great money. That's what the kingdoms of earth do. And they all rise and they all fall in the end, just like this nation will one day. But we do so through spiritual means, by preaching, by prayer, by loving sinners and showing Christ to them. Not by persecuting people who refuse to embrace Christ, but to be willing to be persecuted by them and to endure that. And by persevering through tribulation. That is the work of the Spirit. And it is through these things that we actively trample over the devil with the sights of victory in the name of Christ. And all of this is, to be sure, a real joy to us. To serve Christ to be useful to Him, to labor for His kingdom with our lives. This is our calling and our purpose. But even so, as glorious as all of this is, Jesus points us to an even greater joy, which is to be the bedrock of all our joy. That is, not in what you do for Christ, but who you are in Christ. Who are you in Christ? Who am I in Christ? Beloved by God. And more than you could ever conceive. Verse 20. And nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice 
that your names are written in heaven. Now this phrase is used all throughout the Bible to depict whether or not we belong to God. You see this from Exodus all the way to Revelation. And to have our names written in God's book, it's really a familial concept, isn't it? That's what records of family trees contain. Names of all who belong to that family. And so Jesus says, Look, it's great that you're happy about what wonderful service you render to God, but rejoice in this, that you are His, that you belong to Him, because you are in Christ. You know, I say this all the time, and I will repeat it ad nauseum on the pulpit until the day I die, because it is so important and essential, that as believers, we must be careful to not only focus on the imperatives of the gospel, to the neglect of the indicatives of the gospel. And what do I mean by that? Well, these are grammatical terms. Imperatives are commands. They are the commands of Scripture. What you must do, what you are called to do. You are called to live a holy life. You are called to serve Christ and honor Him. You are called to forsake sin and obey God's commandments. And indeed, that's what Scripture commands us of. The gospel has imperatives. However, every imperative must flow from being saturated with the indicatives. What are indicatives? Well, grammatically, they're just statements of that. Right? Imperatives are, hey, kick the ball. Okay, I'll go kick the ball. It's a command. But indicatives are, Sam kicked the ball. This is what he did. And so the indicatives of the gospel are the things that show us and remind us of what God has done the promises and truths of the gospel that he has loved you before the foundation of the world that he has given jesus christ his son to demonstrate that love and if you have trusted in christ you've been adopted into the household of god and he delights in you perfectly unchangingly because you are clothed with the righteousness of christ period statement of fact And the logical order of the gospel is that the indicatives precede the imperatives. And therefore, the indicatives produce the imperatives. And if you flip this order, it is no longer the gospel. Because that's the logical order of every false religion out there, even those that use Jesus' name. That you must obey God and please Him. And confess to some priests or whatever in order that you may receive his love and acceptance and grace. That's not grace. Grace is unmerited. It's undeserved. Freely flowing from the very nature and essence of God. Grace is what makes the gospel such good news. And it comes with this logical order of the gospel. God has given us everything. The true, pure gospel is this. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And if you have confessed your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, listen, God has given you everything. Totally, entirely, holistically, absolutely everything. And His love for you is secured forever because of what Christ has done. And nothing will ever 
change it because your names are written in heaven. You don't have to lobby or file a petition to make sure your name stays on there. You don't have to wonder if on your worst days God has his eraser out and is about to scrub off one letter. If that's the case, I'm in big trouble because my name is so short. Sam Lee, six letters. That's like six lives. That's not how God is. Revelation 13.8 says that these names were written not at the moment of your conversion, but they were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Before you were born. Before you had done anything good or bad. Before the universe even existed. Before God ever said, let there be light. And that's how secure and beloved you are in Christ. And the more you understand this, the more you embrace this, and the more you rejoice in this, the more you will be empowered and energized to obey and live for your God, who is so good and kind and generous and all-satisfying. Christian, when is the last time that you really took the time to meditate and contemplate on the fact that in Christ, the holy, omnipotent, sovereign God, the one who in the Old Testament, there had to be a veil to separate His holy presence from the rest of the people, that He calls you His child. And that your name is written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain in the permanent red ink of His blood. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of how well you behaved this past week. Not because you promised to obey and behave really well next week. But simply because this is who God is. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I am who I am. This is the glory of God in His grace. And He was pleased to reveal Himself to you that He might bring you to Himself so that He might pour out His love upon you. Verse 21, In that same hour Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And the gospel is not for those who are wise in their own eyes, but for those who are humble and contrite in spirit and know that they are nothing. Those who realize that they deserve nothing, and yet, that is the precious paradox of the gospel. That the humble and repentant and lowly who acknowledge that they are dirt, and from dust they came, and to dust they shall return, that it is to them that God gives an outrageous, inconceivable measure of His love. Because notice what Jesus says in verse 22. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. Now look, we could spend weeks on this verse alone. It is a treasure trove of glorious theology. But to put it succinctly, here, Jesus begins by revealing the unique relationship that he has with God the Father, because He is God 
the Son. They are one in essence, inseparably united because there is one God and yet God subsists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If this is mind-boggling to you, that's okay, it should, because this is the incomprehensible glory of our triune God and we will never exhaust the wonder of who He is. But you see, Jesus, being God the Eternal Son, as such, He has a special, unique relationship with the Father. Unlike the relationship that the angels have with God the Father. All throughout eternity, before time began, before the universe was created, before Genesis 1 happened, the Father and the Son delighted in each other in this intimate relationship, in the fellowship of the Spirit. This is the essence of God in His triune nature. He is self-giving love within Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so that's why when God the Son, when Jesus took on humanity to enter the world, and it was there at His baptism that the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descended on Him like a dove, and the Father's voice thundered from above, You are my Son, in whom I delight. You see what was happening? There at the Jordan River, it was like an earthly window into the holy chamber of eternal Trinitarian glory. The Father loves the Son in the fullest delight and perfection of love. And so Jesus says, no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Because there is a unique, intimate love between the Father and the Son. It is a knowing of intimacy. But... Here is where we get a glimpse into the sheer majesty and a wonder of the gospel. Notice what Jesus says. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Those whom He has chosen to receive his grace, sinners whom he has saved and brought to himself, they, you and me, beloved, are brought into the fellowship of the Father and the Son through the Spirit that we might share in that most holy love. Christian, it's not just that you've been forgiven of sins. Of course, that too. It's not just that God is no longer angry at you. Amen, that's true. That is the blessed promise of the gospel. But on top of all of that, is that the love with which the Father loves His only begotten Son, that love is now flowing to you. Why? How? Because you are in Christ, one with Him. When the Bible talks about how the Christian is in Christ and is united to Him, it's not just some nice poetic language, but this shows just how inseparably united you are to Jesus by faith. And if this sounds too good to be true, I want, I want to show you. Turn with me to John chapter 17. Because we need to hear Jesus' own words. John chapter 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples. Some of the most sacred words 
burning with holiness that have been recorded for us. Because here the hour had come for the lamb to be led to the slaughterhouse to be slain. For Christ to put on the crown of thorns, to be stripped naked before godless men, and for the Son of God to be pierced and hung on a cross, bearing the weight of sin on behalf of those He came to save. And with the cross before Him, Jesus prayed for His people at this hour, acting as the great high priest. And it says in John chapter 17, it begins in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. And look down in verse 5. It says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here we see that that unique, intimate relationship between the Father and the Son throughout all eternity before creation. Now go down with me to verse 20. Jesus, first speaking to to the 11, speaking of rather, Uh, of of the 11 disciples but then in verse 20 he speaks of all of his disciples i do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word he's praying for us did you know that for you and me because we have come to believe in the apostolic testimony and witness of the new testament verse 21 i pray for these for all the disciples that are to come that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. And lastly, down in verse 26, Jesus prays, I made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you, Father, Holy Father, have loved me, that that love may be in them and I in them. It was the plan of God to redeem sinners, to remedy the problem of sin so that They might be exalted to the highest place of sharing in the fellowship of His divine love. This is how much God loves sinners. That He would take them for Himself at the cost of His beloved Son and allow them to participate in such intimate, holy, triune love and fellowship. In fact, this is why in verse 21, back in Luke chapter 10, it says that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now the word there, the word rejoice, it's actually much more intense than what we have in the English language. And, it, and it's different uh, of a word than the other words for joy and rejoicing elsewhere in that passage. Because it's actually saying something like, in that hour, Jesus exploded with joy. In the Holy Spirit. Now, now why? What, what was the occasion for which Jesus exploded with such inexpressible joy? Because that same hour, 
was the hour that the 72 returned from their missionary journeys, having cast out demons by the power of God's Spirit vested in them. But while they were excited about what they were uh, capable of doing in the Holy Spirit, Jesus was overjoyed at something greater that it represented. Namely, that by being empowered in the Holy Spirit, those 72 disciples, they were sharing in Jesus' experience and authority and life because He is the anointed one of God who was anointed by the Holy Spirit, descending on Him like a dove. And so by doing the work of God by His Spirit, they were sharing in such intimate fellowship with Jesus. Because as Romans 8.14 says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so Jesus, you see here, the Son of God, rejoiced because in that hour, 72 sinners had experienced the fellowship of sonship with God by the Spirit. Because they were acting in the Son's name, with the Son's authority, for the Son's sake, as though they were one with the Son. And through Christ they partook and the holy love and fellowship of the triune God. The Dutch Reformed theologian Hermann Bovink once wrote this, that the purpose of human life is fellowship with God. To live in Him is life's goal. The spiritual life is to live in fellowship with the triune God, that is, in the Holy Spirit, through Christ, with the Father. And what an amazing thought that this is what brought Jesus explosive joy. You know, we simply have no idea how much God loves us. No wonder Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would be given supernatural strength to comprehend how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ. And it is this gospel wonder that is to be the basis of our joy. That we are so loved by God. And He has demonstrated His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, not while we were following Him and trusting Him and pleasing Him, but while we were His enemies, Christ died for us. Christian, this is who you are in Christ. Utterly beloved by God in the full intensity of of His holy love. And all of this has been revealed to you in the New Testament for your joy, for your assurance, for your supreme happiness and security. And it has freely, undeservingly been given to you, purchased for you on the cross, and sealed for all eternity. All because you're simply in Christ, having trusted in Him by faith. And if you're not in Christ, This can all be yours. If you confess your sin, if you acknowledge that you are a sinner, and you simply trust Jesus to save you, all of this is freely yours. And that you could be made a child of God. And Christian, this is what God has revealed to you in the pages of Scripture as a gift to you that you might have joy in Him every single day. 
And this is why Jesus says in verse 23, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Because many prophets and kings of the Old Testament, they longed to see what you see and to hear what you hear, but they didn't get to see it and to hear it. King David didn't know all of this. The prophet Isaiah, for all the jaw-dropping things that he saw, they were only glimpses and pieces of the puzzle. You think it's amazing that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 the, the, the holy throne of God and the seraphim praising his name? Now don't get me wrong, that is amazing. But you know what's more amazing? That same thing that Isaiah, that Isaiah saw, that same glory was revealed in the person of Jesus, in his real humanity. And that we know that that same image of God What Isaiah saw was the one who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. See, the thing that God had planned and stored up to unleash and reveal through the person of Christ is this magnificent revelation of His triune glory and His holy love for sinners and His willingness to join himself in intimate fellowship with them, with you, Christian. And this is all given to you to know and to believe and to trust and to rejoice in, so that you might praise God for the glory of his grace and the unimaginable extent of his love for sinners like us. And by grasping this a little bit better each day, as you immerse yourself in the gospel each day, that you might joyfully walk in obedience to Him, to live in Him for all of your days into eternity. And this love and fellowship with God is what makes eternity so glorious. And why do you think Jesus has promised to return? Isn't His work all done? He says, It is finished. Why does he need to come back? Because the grand conclusion of it all, the point of all of redemptive history, is that God would one day perfectly dwell with man on earth where we are, face to face, forever. This is how much God loves sinners so intimately that He would choose to be with us forever. This is what the tabernacle that we studied this morning was pointing to. This is what the temple was only foreshadowing. The hope and promise that one day our God shall live with us and in that holy city, in the new renewed earth, the Apostle John Revelation saw no temple there because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb Himself. And there will be no sun and moon to give light because the glory of God will be the light. Church, this is the majesty of the gospel. What love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And indeed, we are in Christ. Let us then learn to rejoice in Christ and to meditate on the riches of the gospel. And praise Him with our lives until He returns, just as He has promised. Let's pray together.
our holy, holy, holy God, the one whom seraphim cry out and cherubim guard your holy presence, we thank you that you have stooped down so low to filthy sinners like us that you have given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would join himself with us, that we might be restored into fellowship with you. What a mystery and joy the gospel is, and we pray that you would help us to rejoice in it. And even now, as we prepare our hearts to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, would you sanctify and set apart this ordinary bread and cup for your most holy purposes, that as we take this visible sign and seal of the gospel, that through it you would remind us of your great love for us, and that you feed us, and that you are the one to nourish us, and give to us every blessing and joy and goodness, and may it empower us to live in joyful obedience to you the rest of our days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.